0: you ever lost something? (laughs) Silly question, right? (laughs) Yeah, we've lost stuff. Yeah, we've all lost something at some point in our lives. Uh, Car keys, glasses, the remote control, that seems to be a common one at our house. Um, And actually in our house lately, uh, uh, Melanie has gotten into the habit of stashing things under our couch. So really in the last month, if we haven't been able to find something, that's kind of where I go first, you know, look, and I might not always find what I'm looking for, but it seems like there's generally something under there, under the couch. Um, uh, you know, it, it really can be pretty frustrating when we've lost something. We don't, maybe don't know where we lost it, don't know how we lost it. Um, one person sought to aid mankind in this perpetual search for things by writing a book, called, How to Find Lost Objects. Really, it's a real book. For $6.50 on Amazon, you can be the next owner of How to Find Lost Things, Lost Objects, sorry. And, and just, you know, some of the principles in the book, I'll just warn you ahead of time. Some of the principles are, think about where you last used the object. Uh, that's a deep one. Um, yeah, you know things are often right where they're supposed to be. That's another principle. So it's maybe not the best 650 that you'd ever spend, but but uh, there was one. I, I was interested by this one called, and maybe this makes it worth the 650. I don't know. But uh, there's one called the Eureka Zone, which I thought was kind of interesting for our context. But of course, Eureka means I found it, right? So so the Eureka Zone principle states that that uh, objects tend to travel no more than 18 inches from where they are supposed to be, from their original location. So so you determine what the Eureka Zone is, and then you search there meticulously. I thought, you know, that, and that actually did help find the remote control one day in our house, because it wasn't just under the cushions, it was like down in the couch, and it's like, it's gotta be right there. So, so maybe it is worth it, but um, uh, so if somebody jumps up during my sermon, runs out the back, because you just remember where you left that screwdriver four years ago, I guess I'll, I'll know what's going on, I won't be offended by you leaving. But, uh, you know, the reason a guy can write a book about how to find lost things is that losing something is a universal experience. It, it just is. It doesn't matter your education level, your race, your socioeconomic status, your religion, your occupation, it, it, none, none of that matters. We've all lost something at some point in our lives, and we've searched for it so that we might get it back. And I think an argument can be made that, that this universal experience isn't just limited to us as humans, but that it even extends to God himself, which is kind of interesting to think about, right? You know, you might be thinking, well, God's omniscient. How can he lose something? And, and I'm not talking about losing something. It's not like God has misplaced an object. That's not what I mean. It's it's that something, or, or maybe more specifically, someone, is not presently with Him. They are they are lost in that sense. So God has lost things. He has searched for lost things. You know, you, you and I have maybe engaged. In an intense search for something in our lives, but I don't think it probably compares to to the level which God is willing to go to to seek after what is lost, and and that's what we're going to see in our text today. Uh, Maybe you've guessed we've we've come to that famous parable in Luke's gospel, the parable of the prodigal son. Talk about searching for lost things, right? It's it's a parable that we've probably no doubt heard at one form or another at some point in our lives, maybe many, many times. This is even a, a parable that's kind of permeated culture. You know, somebody who hasn't read the Bible could probably convey some details about that story. It's also a parable that many times has the beginning and the end just cut off. And, and what we're going to do this morning is we're going to try and look at the parable in its entirety. Because the beginning of the, the story really consists of two shorter scenes about, about a lost sheep and a lost coin. And then the end of the story consists of information about the son in the story who truly is the lost son. And it's not the one that ran away from home. So when when we're confronted with this story, quite often we're not confronted with the whole story. So so uh, as you can see in your sermon notes for today, we're, we're we're going to study this parable in all four of its scenes because I think that's so important. Um, but before we even get to the scenes, we need to we need to uh, set the stage, right? We need to set the stage for the parable because it, if we If we fail to do that, we won't recognize the connections we're supposed to make as we're going through this. So so the setting is is, uh, given to us in the first two verses of Luke chapter 15. I'd encourage you to follow along with me uh, as we're reading through this today. Luke chapter 15 verse 1 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So, as the scene is set here, there's three main characters that are present as this story is going to be told. So, uh, it's important to recognize the three characters because the three characters in the final scenes of the story will correlate to these real-life characters that are hearing the story. So it's important to know who's there and present. Um, So the first main character is is Jesus himself. He's the first one that that we need to be aware of. Because of his teaching, his miracles, his his compassion, he'd been drawing people to himself. Uh, It was just something about Jesus that was powerfully attractional. And it and it really it was those who admired him and those who were threatened by him. Both found it difficult to stay away from Jesus. So so he's he's the first character to be to be aware of. The second main character is is the tax collectors and sinners who were flocking to Jesus. They they were considered by the religious leaders to to be people who were unworthy. So, so the tax collectors, sinners, they had said something or done something or, or just simply been born into a situation where they were no longer welcomed by the religious establishment. And, and, and since the religious establishment saw themselves as the gatekeepers to God in a way, uh, that meant that this group of tax collectors and sinners, were, they'd essentially been told that they are not welcomed by God. So that's the second group. And then the third group is the religious establishment, the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law. Uh, they, they were the individuals who lived outwardly upright lives and, and sought to adhere as closely as possible to the Old Testament law. And, and then not only that, they sought to adhere to the oral traditions that had sprung up around the law as well. So they 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 themselves would not be caught dead receiving sinners and eating with them. Uh, the very thing that uh, they accused Jesus of doing here, and it was a true accusation. Jesus did do that. So, so that's, that's the setting. Those are the characters that are there and present as the story is going to be told, So the first scene out of the four, the first scene opens with the the spotlight focused on a shepherd and his flock of sheep. So look with me here at verse three. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? So in this first scene, we've got the shepherd with a flock of a hundred sheep, and he loses one of them. And and even though it's only 1% of his flock that is lost, and it's really a pretty small percentage, but, but even so, because he's a good shepherd who cares for every one of his sheep, he goes out searching for the one that is lost. Now... Now, as we read through these different scenes in, in the parable, uh, it's going to be helpful to notice both the similarities and the differences between each of the scenes. And, and if we do that, one thing that we'll notice is that in each scene, we're going to see, there's a gathering together of friends and neighbors in order to collectively rejoice over what was lost being found. It's kind of this party, this celebration that takes place. And it really was, it was reminding me of a few weeks ago, um, we were helping Jacob and Samantha move into their uh, new house, and somewhere in their house was a box with bed sheets uh, for the kids' beds. Knew it was there somewhere, and even though there was a few of us that searched all over that house a couple times, could not find it could not find it. I mean, we probably needed that book from Amazon to, to I wish I would have known about it at that point, but couldn't find this box of bedsheets. Well, a few days later, they were found. They, they turned up, and, and once they were finally located, what did my sister do? She sent out a text to those of us who'd been uh, looking for them and joyfully told us that these lost bedsheets had been found. We were digitally brought together to rejoice over what was lost, being found. Now, I imagine that Sam and Jake's house the other day, there were at least 99 other boxes that were unopened, and, and, you know, that were opened, excuse me, in the midst of the packing, the unpacking. And, and, but, but none of those 99 warranted a text message thread, right? The, the, there was no nobody, no, look, hey, here's the toothpaste that was right where it's supposed to be. It wasn't lost, like we knew exactly where it was. We don't usually rejoice over not lost things being not lost. We just don't, right? But there's great joy when something that is lost is found, when it's found once again. And and that's the picture here, right? What was lost had been found, and there was great rejoicing together. And as Jesus stated then, there's more rejoicing over a single sinner who repents than over 99 who need no repentance. And that's not to degrade or to devalue things that aren't lost, not at all. It's simply to recognize the joy which rightly arises from things being found. I mean, that's what we need to take away from the statement there. There's great rejoicing on earth and in heaven when lost things are found, and especially as we'll see when lost people are found. So that's the first scene. The second scene is a little shorter, but but much the same as the first. Verse 8. "'Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, "'Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost.'" Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So this time, scene two, there's a woman, ten coins, loses one. And, and just to give us a bit of perspective, each coin was probably about a day's wages. So they're not talking a quarter, you know, or a dollar coin. I mean, this is a, it's a significant amount of money. Imagine having ten days' wages to your name and you lose one of them. Okay, so, but, and and like the shepherd in the previous scene, the woman searched diligently until she found the lost coin. And then once again, just like before, uh, she she, uh, brought her friends, her neighbors together and they celebrated over this lost coin being found. And again, one more time, Jesus emphasized the joy that exists in heaven before God at the repentance of a single sinner. Now, when we're reading a book, when we're watching a movie, uh, the climax of the story is, it's probably never in the first couple chapters of the book or the first 15 minutes of the movie. That's just not how stories work. And and likewise, you know, the, the two scenes of this parable, while they're important to understanding the final two scenes, they're not the climax. They're not the climax of this story. They're setting the stage for the climax that is to come. So so let's move on now to the third scene of the story, and this is the one that focuses upon the character traditionally referred to as the prodigal son. Starting in verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, And took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, Now this is a parable, so it's a made-up story, but there's still cultural background information that's helpful when understanding uh, what's going on here. So in Jewish practice, the, uh, the patriarch of the household was the head of that household, and, and it, was, uh, it was also common practice for the eldest son Of the patriarch to step into that role once the head of the household once the the father had passed away and along with that leadership this being the head of the household came a double portion of inheritance so in this instance since the the father in the story had two sons Uh, uh, his estate would have been divided up into three parts, and the oldest son would have gotten two parts, the youngest son would have gotten one part, one-third of it. Uh, It's not like situations today that might arise where where the reading of a person's will can can kind of be a dramatic thing if that will was kept secret, you know, you didn't really know what's in there, what's going to be uh, brought to light. Um, uh, In this setting, it's common knowledge. The older son gets two-thirds, this younger son gets one-third. Everybody knew that. What is like today is that the inheritance is not given until the patriarch passes away. That's just like today. So when the younger son approached the father and asked for his share of the inheritance to be given to him now... it was as if he's saying, Father, I wish you were dead. I wish it was as if you were gone. Give me what is coming to me now. Man, it, it, it's clear that this son's relationship with his father was worth very little, if anything, in his sight. It, it was his relationship with his inheritance, really, that that mattered to him more. And And shockingly, the father agreed the father agreed to this insulting demeaning request that his son made i mean he had every right to discipline his younger son and expose him to public shame for making this kind of request he would have had every right in that culture to do that what we're told is that he didn't he he simply divided his property now We've got to put ourselves in that setting, you know, in thinking through the logistics of that. His property probably would have consisted most substantially of land, livestock, stored grain. So, so to, give, to give this son his inheritance would have involved a, a difficult and, and probably very public task of liquidating one third of his estate. It it wasn't like he could just write a check to his son and off he went. I mean, this was a public manner. People in town probably knew something was going on here. Why would you liquidate a third of your estate like this? So very soon then, that's all done, after the uh, transaction is completed, the son packs his bags, probably didn't even say goodbye, and just left, left for a foreign country. And, And what he left behind for his father and his older brother, which we'll come back to, was a situation filled with emotional pain, economic upheaval, and probably public shame too. Uh, there probably wasn't much more that this younger son could have done to harm his family than what he did. And, and we read how the story unfolded. Uh, unsurprisingly, maybe, the, the son squandered his money and found himself in a desperate situation. Uh, So desperate, he's willing to hire himself out to a foreigner uh, to feed the pigs. Uh, Imagine the most despicable and degrading job that you can think of, and that's on par with what this Jewish son was resigned to do. He'd hit rock bottom, there's no question. He had hit rock bottom, and when he got there, we're told he, he came to his senses, right? There's a glimmer of hope. He came to his senses and he decided that, that in all humility, he would crawl back to his father. I mean, just imagine how he left the situation with his father and it's so desperate that he's willing to go back there, go back to his father with his tail between his legs, shame upon himself and, and beg to be hired as a servant. I mean, he had absolutely nothing to offer to his father at this point. All he could do was was throw himself at his father's feet and just beg for mercy. And this is the third scene of the story, right? So just like with the story of the shepherd who lost the sheep, and just like with the story of the woman who lost a coin, the father was searching for his son, and the reason we know he was searching is because he saw his son coming when he was still a long way off. It, it, it wasn't as if the son showed up on the doorstep, rang the doorbell and you know, surprise, I'm back. The father was searching and saw the son coming when he was still a long way off. And, and when that day finally came, the father himself risked shame and humility by running out to greet his son. In, in that culture, for, for an older man to, to hike up his robe and run, that was considered an undignified display. And, and, and even beyond that, to do so for a son who had humiliated him in the way he did took things to a whole other level. But the father didn't care. I mean, he didn't care. His, his lost son had returned, and then just like with those other two scenes, there was rejoicing over the lost being found, and now we're not told specifically this time that friends and neighbors were called together like in the previous two scenes, but I think the detail about the fattened calf implies that, because if you kill a fattened calf, that would have provided enough meat to feed a whole village, I mean much more than just a a family. So I I think it's implied this was no private party. This was a public celebration for the son that had returned. I mean, he he was dead and is alive again, as the father stated. He was lost and and is found. And so they began to celebrate. And not just in the household and not just in that village, but I think, again, it's implied in heaven as well. Just like there was rejoicing in the previous two scenes in heaven, it's implied that there is in this one too. What a story. I mean, what a incredible, it's an incredible story about redemption and forgiveness and mercy and, and unconditional love. I, I mean, when you think about it, short of any details about, about Jesus' literal crucifixion and the importance of that, this might be the clearest expression of the nature of the gospel message in all four of the gospels. It really might be. I mean, the image that we are, are, are given about the nature of God is amazing in this story. So we can roll credits, you know, wipe the tears from our eyes, because this incredible story has come to its marvelous conclusion, right? The lost son has come back home. That's the end. Except that it's not. It's not the end of this story. See, there's a problem with the story up to this point. Remember, who was this story being told to? We had the tax collectors and the sinners that were present, but there was the the Pharisees, the the religious establishment that was there too. The problem was that the Pharisees, the scribes, they were not able to relate to any of this story that had been told. They couldn't relate to the shepherd. That, That profession was beneath them. That was a despised profession in that time. They they wouldn't be able to relate to that. They couldn't relate to the woman. They were a man, simple enough. They couldn't relate to that. They couldn't relate to the younger son because they they would never even think about leaving Israel for a far country. But that doesn't mean that they aren't able to relate to the story because as you see, there's four lost things in this story. There's the lost sheep, there's the lost coin, the lost younger son. But then if we finish the story, we find out that there's the lost older son as well. So let's look at this final scene together. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, but the older brother, was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. and All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I, I, I want to work hard in this final scene not to dehumanize the older son in the story, because I think it's easy to do. And I think if we do that, it's not beneficial for us. We, we, We miss kind of what's going on. And this older son watched as his brother brought incredible pain and humiliation upon his father, but the whole family as well. I mean, the older brother saw that the older son watched his father scan the horizon day after day, waiting for this son to come back, only to be met with disappointment for quite a while. This older son, who was the rightful heir of everything left in his father's estate, it was his, it would be his eventually, he watched as the best robe The family ring, shoes, the fattened calf—they were taken from his inheritance and given to the younger son. Imagine that. I I mean, I think I can understand why, why he struggled with the party that was taking place for his younger son—that or his younger brother—that had come back. I I think I can can understand that. But even though I understand it, it doesn't negate the shame that he brought on his father in this story. I mean, the whole village was probably gathered at this celebration, and this time the older son dishonored his father because he refused to go in. He, he was not going to take part in this celebration. And so when the father came out to the older son, that, you know, the, the older son had, had this whole speech prepared. And, and in his speech, I mean, he wouldn't even refer to the younger son as his brother. He couldn't even say it. He said, this son of yours. (laughs) Can you hear it? Wouldn't even call him his brother, this son of yours. You know, and all of a sudden in this fourth scene, we get what could have been a story that ended with just this nice little bow attached to it at the end of verse 24. It becomes this cliffhanger with incredible tension that really never gets resolved in the story. It ends right there as I finished reading. That's the end of the story. We're never told what happened to the older son. We don't know if he entered into the celebration, or if he remained lost outside of the banquet. We're just not told. So it's not the it's not the ending that was expected for this story. But it, it was the ending that was needed. It was the ending that was needed in order to challenge the religious leaders to open their eyes and and consider the attitudes of their own hearts. It's really what Jesus was driving at with how he ended this story. As as we close this morning, I I, I want to highlight two points of application, and and there are honestly so many things that could be said about this story. I mean, so many sermons that could be preached about the different details and and, and application points, but but I just want to focus on two specifically this morning. And, and the first thing is, is that we see in this story, all four scenes, God lovingly searches for those who are lost. The shepherd, the, the woman, the father, they're all meant to reveal to us the character of God. The shepherd, right, he searched for the lost sheep, the woman searched for the lost coin. The father searched for his lost son, scanning the horizon, waiting for him to come back. The father also searched for the lost older son by leaving the banquet and going out to him. There's an active searching there. Uh, our God is a God who searches for those who are lost. He, he longs for those who've, who've pridefully rejected him to come back to him. He, he longs for those who've pridefully done everything right to come back to him, as we see with the older son. And so I, I would say, if you, if you look at this and consider yourself lost at the moment, God longs for you to come back to him. And, and if you have any doubt about the reaction that you'll receive to God, uh, if you go back to him, I, I encourage you to read this story over and over and over again until you are convinced that God will respond like the Father in this story. Uh, the The parable is often called the parable of the prodigal son. I mean, that, that's how it's titled the heading in, in uh, the translation I'm reading from and, and others as well. The, the word prodigal the definition means uh, spending money or, or resources freely, uh, being wastefully extravagant. Uh, good description of the younger son, right? Took everything, went off to that foreign country, and he, and he did just that. But I think a, I think a strong case can be made that this parable might better be called the parable of the prodigal father. I mean, uh, the, the physical and the emotional resources which he possessed, he gave freely and extravagantly to both of his sons, the younger and the older. Prodigal father, I mean, he he was wastefully extravagant in how he treated his sons. God the Father will respond to you and me in that same way. That's who he is. He will freely and extravagantly pour out his love upon you and upon me if we will receive it. That's who he is. It's, it's, it's what this story shouts at us. So God lovingly seeks those who are lost. It's the first thing. The, the, the second thing I wanna focus on today is, is what I think, I, I think is the calling which this story gives to those who, who are part of God's family. I think we're called to something as as God's children, we are to participate in the search for the lost. I think that's what this calls us to. So let's go back to the older uh, older son for just a moment. Um, in my study I, I was I was reading in some commentaries and and in one of them i I was stopped in my tracks by by a question that was posed, and the writer asked this question. He said, how would the story have been different if instead of the father, it was the older son who first met the younger son as he was returning home? How would the story have been different if it wasn't the father who went out and met him, but it was the older son who went out and met his brother? How would the younger son have experienced that situation? Man. I think it's safe to say the younger son would have been met with rejection, been met with disdain, been met with anger from his older brother. And upon being received in that way by his older brother, the younger son probably would have just turned around, walked away, and never been given the incredible opportunity to experience the redeeming love of his father. Probably would have never got to that point. And so uh, the question as we think about application today is uh, how, many, how many times has, has a younger son hit rock bottom and, and started a journey to return to God but been met first by one of God's children who responded like the older son in this story? And how many times has that younger son turned around and, and given up and missed out on that incredible, redeeming love of God that was available. Uh, man, I, I think there's a there's a humbling aspect to thinking about that. You know, as, as God's children, the words we say, the things we do, the attitude we have toward others, it, it matters. It really does matter, and, and it's And it's not just that we ought to rejoice when lost people are found, but we ought to participate in the search as well. You know, you think about the story the older son, even though he hadn't yet taken over as head of the household, he should have been preparing to do so by learning his father's ways. I mean, we look at this story and, and you look at the father and you look at the older son and they do not look similar at all. They look very different from one another, but the older son should have been learning to carry on the ways of his father because the day would eventually come when his father would die and he would take his place as, as the patriarch and it would be up to him to search for those within the house who, who became lost. I mean, while the, while the father in the story is a, a picture of God himself, it's also a picture of the very attitude that we are called to have. Because we, we've been redeemed and forgiven and, and adopted into God's family. And so we too are, are, are to participate in the search for others who are lost. It's what our father does. And we are to join with him in that. Um. The passage that uh, Tim Meese read from Ezekiel 34 this morning, kind of a tough passage. Maybe you're wondering why in the world we would have a passage like that to open a worship service. But in that passage, I mean, the, the leaders of Israel were portrayed as shepherds who were abusing the the sheep rather than protecting them, feeding them, and searching for them when they became lost. That's what they were called to do. And they were not doing it, and, and so God's words to them were were very strong. And that passage is, again, it's a tough one to read. I, man, I, I don't ever want that passage to be true of me. I, I, I don't want to be a shepherd who fails to search for lost sheep. I, I don't want to be an older son who, who rejects a lost brother returning home. I, man, I don't want that to be. Ideally, in today's story, ideally, the father and the older son, in their mutual excitement, would have had a foot race to see who could get to that younger son first and welcome them back home. Ideally, that's what would have happened. Shouldn't we have a foot race with God? I mean, shouldn't we run together with him to welcome home those who are lost? I mean, that's, that's what it's about, and, and and the question is, when I think about myself and my own life, what does that practically look like? What does that look like in my life? What does that look like in your life, to have a footrace with God, to welcome home those who are, who are lost? I, I think that's a question worth pondering, one that I can't answer in detail for each one of us, but, but one that we can ask ourselves. And... And, and ask before God, what, what would it look like to run with you to welcome home those who are lost? I, I mean, that, that, that's my prayer. It's my prayer for myself, for all of us, that, that uh, we would search together with God for those who are lost. And then when the lost are found, rejoicing together, celebrating with with the Father, just like the celebration that's taking place in heaven at the same time. Because that's what the celebration here on earth was meant to emulate. The celebration in heaven over that one sinner that, is, uh, that has come home, that has found their way back to the Father and been, been welcomed home. Welcomed, forgiven, made whole once again. I mean, that's what it's about. We're called to join in the search, and we 're called to join in the celebration when the lost are then found. would you stand with me um, let, let 's pray to let 's pray to our loving Father, who does indeed welcome us back when we when we run to him heavenly father we uh, we come to you this morning. Um, I think in some way, just in awe of the story, it's an incredible story just from a literary sense, but but even more than that, it's an incredible story because of the truth that it communicates. We're just so thankful, we're, uh, we're humbled that, uh, uh, that you search for us, that when we are lost, you look for us and you long for us to return, and you're You've got open arms ready for, for when, we, when we come back. I thank you for that, God. We know we don't deserve that in any way, the, the, the shame that we can bring upon you in your name. Uh, but we thank you that, that you respond to us as the father with the younger son. And at the same time, I thank you that when we are that older son, Pride gets the better of us. We are tempted to look down on others. Uh, I thank you that you, still, that you still seek for us. You search after us. You, you, you come out of the party to, to entreat us to come in. I thank you for that, Father, that you love us no matter which situation we're in. And I thank you for the, both the responsibility and the privilege of, of joining with you in this search. I ask that you'd give us your uh, your compassion, your love, your vision for those who are lost. That we would be ready and excited to to welcome home those who've returned, and that that we can then celebrate, join together and rejoice. Rejoice for what it means for the here and now, but but rejoice for what it means for all of eternity when when lost people come to you. God, I just uh, I pray that you would, you would lead us in that, that you would draw us into that search, that you would remind us of our calling, remind us that, that we, we are that lost son, that younger son that has come back and that we'd be ready to welcome others that are taking that same journey. We praise you for your love. We praise you for your love that is unconditional and unending. And God, it's because of that that we gather here. It's because of that that we devote ourselves to you. And and it's because of that that we, we sing to you yet again this morning. I pray these things in your name. Amen.